Hi all, and thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Open House. We're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all, because we believe that you can truly experience life advancement without having to spend thousands of pounds on -on one-on-one therapy. We believe that happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. If you love this episode today, please do share on social media and tag us at Open House Life, as well as tagging Dr. Tari and I. Now, into the episode, and it's a juicy one. Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House Podcast. I have the incredible Dr. Terry Mack with me once again, and this week I am coming to you from the jungle in Tulum. We are going to be discussing all things Will Smith, and we are not going to be going into the rights and the wrongs about Will Smith and what he did at the Oscars and whether it was right and whether it was wrong, even though we do have some strong opinions on that, so we might touch on it briefly. But what we are going to do today is touch upon how his experiences in childhood actually shaped why that event and experience happened. Now, this is something that's come out really, really obviously in my own personal therapy journey. And I now understand that we are so shaped by our childhoods and what we learn from our parents and people around us that it really, really defines who we become in adulthood. Now, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the backstory to Will Smith and his childhood, because when I read this article online, I instantly sent it to Dr. Terry and I said, this is crazy. I had no idea. And now this makes so much sense. She totally agreed with me. So we cannot wait to dive a little deeper into this today. So In Will Smith's autobiography, he describes at length the appalling domestic violence that he witnessed by his father inflicted on his mother. When he was nine years old, he watched his father punch his mother, this is in quotation marks, so hard in the side of her head that she collapsed and spat blood. He said that that moment has defined him more than any other moment in his entire life. And it wasn't actually the violence that traumatized him, but it was his own inaction in the face of it. He goes a little bit deeper next. And this part kind of really hit me quite hard, which is when he said he feels like his entire career has been a carefully crafted and honed character designed to protect himself from the world and to hide the coward. He wrote that as a child, he always told himself that one day he would avenge his mother. So, Dr. Perry, what were your initial thoughts when you heard or read that? Because when I read that, I was like, oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. And, you know, whether it was a publicity stunt or not, you know, we're not going into those things. We're not going into the fact that it was wrong and that people should never deal with their dysregulation through violence. But when you learn about that, what did you think? Oh, I thought so many things. The first thing that came up for me was, you know, what a burden for a child to take on. And what he talked about is what we all do as children, when we are in our families, parts of systems that we literally don't have any control over or any real power in. Instead of acknowledging to ourselves, hey, I'm helpless here. I'm powerless. I can't do a damn thing to change what the adults in my life are doing or not doing. We internalize it. And we we feel that we have power that we don't have. We feel we have responsibility that really isn't ours. 
So Will is talking about that. He's saying he felt like he should have taken action as a child to protect his mother from his father, two adults, right? And then that shaped him from that point forward into adulthood. And this happens for all of us. We internalize things that are not really about us, that we really don't have power over. And then we continue to focus on those things into adulthood and usually causes us a lot of problems in our life and relationships. The other thing I thought is, you know, he, because of this, he became so focused on protecting someone else, which really cut his own connection with himself. You know, he wasn't thinking about like, how do I take care of myself? How do I protect myself? How do I honor myself? Instead, it's like, how do I hide that I'm such a coward? And how do I show up and avenge show up for women in my life and avenge my mom? I think it was really interesting what he said about almost building this character around himself later in life. Because what I've realized since starting my own therapy journey is ultimately therapy is a tool that helps you unravel the story that you've built about yourself. You know, we take on these stories and this conditioning and it kind of becomes who we are because we're not really thinking about, am I actually this person? You know, where did I pick this up from? Where did I pick that up from? And I think that that was something that I picked up as well. Like, you know, in my life, I always thought that I was the overworker, the overcompensator. I love working. I love being in control, doing X, Y, Z, going to the gym. And actually, when I started unraveling it, it was like, no, I wasn't born as that person. Just like Will Smith wasn't born as the person that had this ingrained belief that he had to protect someone. And I think that understanding that actually all of these personality traits, a lot of them we pick up along the way, is a huge part of the healing journey. And I read somewhere that between the ages of naught to seven is when you basically are like a sponge in childhood because you're acting in, I think it's delta waves, which means you basically pick up everything around you. Is that true? And do you see that it's between zero to seven when you pick up the vast majority? What happens when you get into teenage years? Like is your personality set or does it continue to absorb things from around you? I wouldn't say your personality is set after the age of seven, but during that period of time, your brain is really developing. And so those early experiences really have an impact on how you see yourself, how you see others and how you see the world. As you move into the teenage years, our brains are still developing. That frontal lobe, you know, is still developing and all the way up until we're 25. So situations, incidents, relationships, past the age of seven, obviously still impact us. But yes, those early years are the most formative in terms of how we see ourselves, the world and other people. And I love what you said about therapy really helping unravel some of these stories that we've been told and that have been told about us. Because when we come into the world, we are, for the most part, a blank slate, right? Like we're whole, we're lovable. And then all of our experiences shape how we feel about ourselves, what we learn about relationships, what we learn about emotional processing, all of these things that we're taught, all these templates that are passed down to us from other people that used to be children and went through the same process. 
right? So there's a lot of unlearning we have to do as well. There's lots of stories we've created about who we are, why we do the things we do that usually are inaccurate or limiting. Yeah. It's funny because I was talking to my mom about this when I was with her last week on holiday and we were talking about how when we were younger, so my father is very, he's a lawyer, he's very analytical, very logical. And my mother is very creative, soft skills, intuitive. So as we grew up, I was kind of labeled the, I I don't want to say intelligent, but you know, very studious, very hardworking, very analytical mind. Whereas my brother was like, the more creative and artistic one, very sporty, et cetera, et cetera. And what was so funny is that actually I ended up kind of taking that narrative on board, becoming a lawyer, which is, you know, the ultimate experience of sort of rational, logical, no creativity whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then I realized one day, this story that I've picked up all along that I'm not creative is actually not true. And I'm actually insanely creative and now Mm. you know for the last seven years I've worked being a creative creating brands doing so much creative work but actually my whole life went down a road that was kind of based on sort of the narrative that my mum put forward and you know I trust spiritually that everything in life is happening for you not against you and anytime that I talk about things that I've picked up I'm not resentful in any way. Yeah, so I thought that was super interesting. And I'd love for us to go through some more, I guess, like example stories that people pick up in childhood. So I think one of the biggest ones that I see, not only within myself, but with friends and people around me is that we have to earn love. And it has literally defined my whole life until I went to therapy to start to unravel it. And we talk about this a lot, is that I love No, I loved, past tense, the emotionally unavailable man, the bad boy, the person that will keep me on my toes, the person that I had to fight for, and everything was a big game to make him fancy me, to make him love me, and I would always win the game, and it would be like cycle complete, on to the next. And that's something that I learned in childhood through having a less available parent in my father who was physically at work a lot, emotionally quite limited, love him dearly, don't hold it against him. Is that something that you see a lot that people feel like because of their relationship with their mother or their father, that it really impacts their romantic relationships? Oh my gosh. Yes. I would say that's probably one of the biggest categories that I see with the people that I work with. And we call that a transactional model of love. If I show up in a certain way, if I give you what you want, if I perform the way you want me to, then I earn love. And there's lots of different things that fall under that, like people pleasing and caretaking and over-functioning in relationships. It shows up in so many different ways, but it's all under this umbrella that I have to earn love. And when I talk to people about this and I tell them, listen, you don't want somebody to be with you because you make them feel good, right? You want somebody to be with you because they like who you are. They respect who you are. They like being with you and they want to know you. That is like a totally foreign concept to people. And so all these things that I mentioned over functioning, doing all the work in your relationship, people pleasing, caretaking in your relationships, those are all forms of this belief that many people learned 
that I have to earn love. And it keeps us very stuck in our relationships. And we discussed that in the Haley and Justin episode when we looked at the dynamic in their relationship. And if anyone hasn't listened to that episode, you should, because it is fascinating how we deep dived into her parents' relationship. And once we did that, it made so much sense as to why she has put herself in this very sort of caregiving, codependent situation with Justin. So I think that is fascinating. I also think that there's potentially something to explore here, particularly between the ages of zero to seven around relationships with siblings, there being like a golden child or maybe, you know, I felt like my brother was the golden child because my father connected with him probably more so than he did with me because they had more mutual interests. And this was all subconscious and unconscious, but I think I internalized that as me sort of not being worthy of being loved and lovable. And these things sound very dramatic. I think when you just put them out there in a podcast in a very summarized way, but going through it in therapy helps you realize that, you know, feeling defective or unlovable, it's not a very obvious feeling. It's not like, oh, I'm unlovable. Mm -hmm. But as you go down through it, it's just very subtle nuances, a bit like I have to fight for your love. Or if I'm super pretty or super caring, or I look a certain way, then you might love me more. I think those are what I've learned to be also emanations of this, like underneath it, you maybe don't feel like you are lovable or worthy how do you see that in terms of like the sibling dynamic do you see that as something that can shape you negatively and positively but today we're looking more at the negatives absolutely I mean I always ask the the people that I work with about their relationships with their parents with their caregivers with their siblings because those are significant formative relationships again, and you're in a family system. So you have to consider how the system works, how everybody is treated and how you feel in that system. Where was your place? What was your role in that system? Everybody has a role, right? Mm. Growing up, everybody listening to this podcast can ask themselves, what was my role in the family? Was I labeled the strong one? Was I the caretaker, the one that like smoothed everything over? Was I the troublemaker? Everybody had a role and it was never usually spoken. Sometimes it is. Sometimes those labels get spoken out loud, but a lot of times they don't. And so, yes, our relationship with our siblings is huge. I feel like we're going very deep in today's episode. I'm sharing like a lot of my own personal experience, which is maybe, I mean, it's exactly what we're out for doing here, but I maybe wasn't expecting to go so deep. But I think what you said about the almost unspoken family dynamic is so interesting and important to reflect upon because I really have seen it in practice. And I'm just going to take two examples here. So the first one is, I learned, I guess, because I maybe didn't feel as loved or welcomed into my family unit, you know, even though my parents loved me so dearly, so dearly, but I definitely like retreated from quite a young age. I would read books a lot. I would be in my bedroom a lot. I would sit on MSN a lot. And I think that that has shaped me today in adulthood, which is that, again, people will be like, what is she talking about? But I'm actually very introverted in that I, I'm very confident, which is what people see, but 
being introverted or extroverted is actually where you recharge your battery and your energy. Mm. So it's not whether you're confident or shy. It's like, do you get recharged by being in a group, which is an extrovert or on your own? And for me, I think because I'm quite a sensitive person, I find group settings really stimulating and quite draining. So I really need to be on my own to recharge. And I really think that came from my childhood. And the second thing, which I'd love for us to go into, because I think is fascinating, and I know we're going to go into this in more detail in future episodes, because we need to talk about it. And people are messaging me saying we need to talk about it, is your relationship with food and your body. So in my family, my mom is an incredible cook. She cooks all the time. She's so nurturing. She's really like the maternal mother figure. From a young age, we would eat together and a lot of food. And that has basically moved into adulthood for me, which is that I have a connection between being full and big, heavy meals, like carbohydrates, pizza, pasta. It sets off some kind of chemical reaction in my body that ties back to my childhood of feeling cared for, warm, loved, filled up. And I really am trying to work through that because I look at people that eat a lot of salad, for example. It's just something so stupid is that like my body doesn't like salad that's cold and crunchy because that for me, which I've explored in therapy and it sounds crazy, is like a cold experience because I felt cold as a child the warm experience was very filling for me it's been a huge part of what I've been discussing in therapy in the last two months so I'd love just to talk a bit about the stories that we pick up around food and our body oh definitely I mean I think what you're describing is exactly what we're talking about that our your experience of food and being fed and feeling filled up as a child is still something you've carried into adulthood. And, you know, our relationship with food, for some of us, there's no struggle there. For other of us, there's a huge struggle. And I've been open about the fact that I struggled with bulimia and anorexia for the first half of my life. Thank goodness, one of the miracles that's happened in my life is that's been completely healed because of the self-work that I have done. But you know, we get so many messages from our families and of course, society growing up. And sometimes food is a way that we were taught or we found worked to cope with our emotional selves. If our families were not safe places for us to have big emotions or any emotions, negative or positive, whatever the rules were, sometimes we find food as a way to cope just like we can find exercise or shopping or alcohol or drugs, food is a very common way. And so if you have, if you've used food as a way to cope, you know, that may be something that you're still struggling with. And I would say, you really have to look at what role is food serving in your life other than just satiating your hunger, right? And there's the the HALT acronym. So those are four really big trigger points for people who use food to cope. And then we move into body image. And many of us learned that the way we look externally, that our body image equals our self image, right? When in reality, there is so much more to us 
than just our body image and the way we look externally. But some of us learn that the way we look on the outside equals how lovable we are. And Mm. so if we're having a bad hair day, or if we've gained a couple pounds, we feel badly about ourselves. It affects our emotions. It affects our mood. It affects our self view. And that is something to look at too, to really separate that and say, you know, okay, I'm having a bad hair day or I put on some weight, but there's so much more to me than that. That doesn't have anything to do with how lovable or acceptable I am. But these may be stories that go way back to childhood. And we may have gotten messages that those two things are worth and our external appearance are very much tied together. Yeah, we have so much to go into on the food side of things. And I can't wait to do that with you because I also think that it's interesting here. We've been speaking about what you pick up in childhood from your family, but with the food, I think that that then gets exacerbated when you go to school. I have seen more eating disorders probably between the ages of 12 to 16 at school, including probably setting the foundations for my own slightly disordered eating because at my school there were three like very anorexic girls I think it really made other people think like should I be doing that you know you don't have the emotional awareness at that point to understand like these poor girls are deeply unhappy they're deeply trying to control something and they are like totally lost and on a cliff edge like holding on controlling the one thing that they feel that they can control but I feel like when you're younger you don't have the ability to understand that an eating disorder or eating challenges go so much deeper. And you just kind of like pick up the top level, which is like, oh, maybe I should be thinner. I think I also want to go now into childhood and teenage activities and how they kind of set the foundation. Because for me personally, I did a lot of high level ballet and gymnastics. And it was It was very high level. So even though I was good, I was never the best. You know, I was like in a room with people that are now probably like the lead ballerina for the Royal Ballet. Mm. And when you're up against people like that, and particularly with ballet, every single centimeter of your hand, they'll be like, no, no, no. Like it's always a no. And it just battered me down so much without me even realizing. Mm. And when I left, they said to my mom, it's sad that she's leaving the ballet cohort she's a really beautiful strong dancer and it was like the one piece of feedback they gave me it was after like 12 months of being like no 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 do you see that happening as well is that you go into hobbies for example and where does that comparison come from because kids age one aren't comparing themselves to each other like when do we pick up the notion that we are to be compared against other people because we're obviously not but I feel like we don't teach our kids that no matter how good you are, it doesn't even matter as long as you are happy and you are enjoying this. That is all that matters. What are your thoughts on that? Oh my gosh. I mean, I have two daughters right now who are seven and nine. So yes, this is always top of mind for me, but as children, we, we don't learn to compare ourselves until other people compare us. And lots of parents do this. Lots of parents compare siblings and lots of parents compare their children to other children, you know, and they don't, they don't know that what they're doing is harmful, but it is, you know, there's a quote, comparison is the thief of joy. And even with my daughter, sometimes I'll, I'll reinforce one of them and say, you know, gosh, you, you did so good this morning, getting up and getting dressed. I didn't even have to tell you. And then the other one will be like, Hey, thanks a lot. And I'm like, I wasn't making a comparison. I was just complimenting your sister. You know, I mean, there's just so we could do a whole episode on comparison. 
because you are never going to be like anybody else. You're not supposed to be like anyone else. And Louise, when you talked about your experience in ballet, it just broke my heart because when we are constantly told that we are not good enough, even if it's coming from a place of love, like if our parent or our, our coach or our teacher is trying to help us achieve something or be better, that still has a huge impact on our self-esteem. If we are being criticized or corrected, there sure as heck better be even more positive mirroring positive reinforcement, pointing out what we're doing right, what is amazing and beautiful and just right about us. And so often that it, there's a huge imbalance there. Parents, coaches, teachers forget to point out the good. And then that's what we carry with us. Oh, so much to say on that. It made me feel a bit emotional there when you said, you know, your heart broke for me telling that story. Because what was so interesting is that from my side, I felt nothing not one ounce of emotion. And I think that now I'm on this self-awareness journey. I understand that that is disassociation. That is stonewalling from the experience. Like, and I think that's why a lot of people say, oh no, it didn't affect me. I've got no issues around it. Mm-hmm. And actually now I'm able to say, do you know what? That probably was a really formative and shaping experience for me, even though I have disconnected from how it made me feel. So I think that for anyone listening, just be mindful that the initial emotion that comes up when you're feeling backwards isn't always what's actually lying under the surface. I think that a lot of it is super protective. And just one note about that, I think in therapy, so much of the work is going back and putting emotions with the story, with the narrative, with the experiences we've had. That is what healing is, is really understanding how we felt because when we feel things, we heal them. It's not because we want to stay stuck there or blame. We just want to acknowledge what we've been through, how it impacted us and how we can move forward. Yeah. You've got to feel it to heal it, right? Yep. Okay. So let's circle back to Will Smith and the topic of conflict and violence. So Mm -hmm. I'm always fascinated how... If, for example, you grew up in a violent household, I I feel like you go one of two ways, right? You either Mm. totally stonewall and disassociate and any violence sends you into an absolute meltdown because it's triggering the worst experience of your life. Or I find that sometimes people actually resort to violence themselves, almost like a learned behavior from their parents, even though they know that it's destructive. So I'm interested in conflict in terms of how do you think, like if you grow up in an angry family, do you think that is going to make you more likely to be angry yourself? Or if you grow up in a family where there is no communication, you know, nothing, nothing is spoken about, no conflicts. Do you think that's more likely to make you anti-conflict? How do you think that works in practice? Well, I think you're right. Usually you go to one end or the other of a spectrum right? It's really hard in both of those scenarios to learn how to be in the middle, which is usually the healthy zone, right? So to communicate, when we start to feel angry, to say, I'm getting really angry, and this is why, or I need to take a break, we either shut down, or we explode. 
And so I think depending on how you internalized your childhood, we all internalize the the messages we're getting based on the role that we have in the family, based on our own psychology of who we are and how we came into the world, depends on what end of the spectrum you're going to go to. And then usually therapy or this kind of work, the spiritual work, the self-work that we're talking about is learning how to have an adult mature, healthy response that's in the middle of that spectrum. So we don't push people away. We don't push people away. So we stay alone and we don't hurt people. We learn how to connect from that middle area. I love that. Therapy just sheds a light on why you are on one end of the spectrum in whatever the topic is that we're talking about. And it helps you to bring you to that middle piece where you can just shine a little spotlight on it and say, okay, this is a safe unhealthy space right here and even though I am wired to veer back to either end of the spectrum I'm going to be aware of it etc etc and I think that some people you know some people are never going to make it to therapy and I dated a guy once who walked in on his mum cheating on his dad and he was young and that's something that no one should ever ever have to experience and I think that he had just internalized this narrative that women are awful. He was like so angry underneath it at women and he just behaved so badly. I just don't think he respected them. I feel like he was like just self-sabotaging everything, but not even self-sabotaging. It was almost just like he hated women. Acting because, out. Yeah. Right. He was acting out. And the second that I saw this, I was like, yo, like I'm out of here. But I just think it's so interesting to look deeper below the surface around people's behavior because what's on the surface is never really it it's just like the tip of the iceberg no there's so much more okay final topic for today I want to talk to you about the attachment styles that we pick up in childhood because it ties back to the point that we spoke about at the beginning of the episode around dating I personally feel that the attachment style you pick up in childhood is one of the most influential things that is going to define your everyday life. And I think that we're seeing a lot more discussion now, particularly on social media around how attachment style doesn't just show up in dating. It shows up in friendships. It shows up in the workplace. So do you want to tell everyone, for those that don't know, a quick overview of what your attachment style is and potentially how your relationship with your parents, caregivers or family unit can shape that in adulthood? Sure. So attachment style comes from our attachments to our caregivers in early childhood, right? So did we feel safe and connected and attached? Did we get that nurturing that we needed? When we did get that, we have a secure attachment, right? Securely attached people, they are okay with having space in a relationship, with being close and having emotional intimacy in a relationship. They can do both in a healthy way. If you are anxiously attached, that means that in childhood, your parent was not emotionally available or physically available in the ways that you needed them to be consistently. Anxiously attached people, which is what I am, thank God I've done a ton of work um, around that. Anxiously attached people are very afraid of abandonment. They're very triggered by having space in a relationship. They are constantly monitoring the mood and the actions of their partner to see if they are about to be rejected or abandoned. It's a really hard way to live. <laughs> yeah, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. Yes. 
Which brings us to the next attachment style that anxiously attached people usually choose, which is avoidant attachment. (laughs) And avoidantly attached people were uh, usually hurt or experienced trauma in childhood, or they learned that they just weren't going to get nurturing, that their parents were not available or that their parents were smothering and did not allow them to have boundaries. So they had an enmeshed relationship. And so the avoidantly attached person is saying, stay away from me. I don't want to get too close. They are not comfortable with emotional intimacy or sustained connection. And like I said, anxiously attached people usually choose the avoidantly attached people so they can continue that dance that they did in childhood. And then the fourth one is disorganized attachment, which is a combination of anxious and avoidant. So if you kind of go back and forth between the two, then you have a disorganized attachment style. I feel like despite how much self-work I've done, I still don't know what my attachment style is. I always thought that I was had the anxious attachment style. Mm-hmm. But then as I've done this work a bit more, some of my guy friends are like, you are obviously the avoidant attachment style. Like the second that anyone comes close to you, you're like, no, no, like not interested, not interested. Mm -hmm. But then I sometimes wonder if I'm the combination because Mm -hmm. it's like, I I want you to come close. And then the second you do, I'm like, oh my God, like, no, like get away from me. But we can go into that in more detail in another episode. But that, that combination one might make sense for me because I feel like, I potentially picked up the more avoidant from my dad and -hmm. potentially became then more anxious to my mom. I don't know if it works like that, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important to understand how you interacted with your parents in childhood. And it's so difficult when dating, if you are anxious or you have some anxious tendencies, because you want to have a conversation with someone to kind of give you some security but you need to develop that security in yourself. Mm -hmm. But you also want to learn to regulate healthy communication outwards. And I'm having it with a friend at the moment. It's like, she just wants to have like a conversation with the person she's dating. And as her anxious best friend, and she has an anxious attachment style too. I'm like, I don't really know if I'm the person that should be advising you on this. Like, I don't really think I know the answer here. Um, Thunder my way, I'll tell her. Yeah, but like, no, it's, it's a good point because it's both, right? The first thing, like you said, is if we, we are anxiously attached, we need to do our own work so we can feel rooted and grounded and safe within ourselves. We do not look to the relationship to make us feel better all the time. And anxiously attached people sometimes bring their anxiety to the relationship all the time because they think I have to talk about it. It's the relationship. I have to talk about it. When in reality, a lot of it is just you. And so you need to develop those self-soothing skills. On the other hand, anybody that you're going to be with needs to make room for your anxious attachment style and your fear. And as long as they know you're working on it, you're aware of it, you own it, And it's not going to change overnight. So you can say, I'm really working on this, but sometimes I may need some reassurance. Sometimes I may need to tell you if I'm feeling anxious and the right person will be totally supportive of that. So it's both, right? 
I love that. And I think that's kind of one of our key endpoints is that it doesn't matter what you picked up in childhood because once you are aware of it, you can work on it. We laugh every time that Dr. Terry talks about an unavailable or the avoidant man because that is me to a T. I spent my whole life chasing them, loving them, doing all sorts of naughty things with them. (laughs) And today, after doing this work, I'm like, I'm not into that anymore. Like, this guy, mess- yay, this guy messaged me the other day and he's just so avoidant and he's so attractive and he can get away with it because women are like, oh my God, and something has switched in me, which is that like, I don't even want to message you back. It's just a waste of my time engaging with someone that is so avoidant or not interested in meeting me in the middle or not interested in a relationship or anything that I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And I feel like that's just such growth for me like the amount of time that you waste like texting people thinking about them trying to make them like you trying to be cute no like excuse my language but fuck that there is so much more to do in this life than to worry about what other people think of you I think this episode has been amazing we've run through so many stories that people pick up in childhood I think there's so many more as well so I was just wondering if you wanted to list a couple that we haven't touched upon just in case they resonate with anyone sure so some other common stories that I hear a lot are I'm too much I'm not enough something's wrong with me you can't trust people people always leave those are some other common stories and beliefs that many of us have brought into adulthood the reason that I'm pulling that face is because I'm like, we need to do episodes on all of those. I think <laughs> they are like so, so influential. And I have experienced a lot of them myself. And also I've seen so many people holding these stories, either consciously or subconsciously. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And to everyone listening, message us, let us know what stories and narratives you picked up in childhood, what ones you've been working on. And Also, from this point forward, we're going to be highlighting on our stories, on the podcast, on Instagram, people that have been shouting out the podcast and putting it on their stories. So if you enjoyed this episode, please do let us know. Please put it on your story and we'll be sure to give you a shout out too. So Dr. Terry, as ever, incredible. I feel like we've just delivered like five months of therapy here in the space of like 35 40 minutes or something like that so thank you for everything and i love you so much and i'll speak to you soon love you too bye